Well, good to uh, see you on this holiday weekend, and uh, I'm very thankful that we all had opportunities to uh, celebrate the Lord this weekend, and be thankful for all that God has given us, and I'm thankful that you're here to worship together as God's people. Uh, the title of my sermon today is God's Kingdom and Our Inheritance, and as a uh, pastor and student of God's Word, a lot of times I get to a passage of scripture and I'm, I'm so like immersed with certain aspects of it that I don't get very far in my study. And <clears throat> this was one of those situations where um, I felt it was necessary for us to make base camp on uh, just a phrase from this passage today um, before we dive in. And, and so... One of the things that you will uh, see in this passage in verses 9 and 10 is Paul references the aspect of inheriting God's kingdom. And I feel like that needs a lot of explanation, so much so that it makes an entire sermon and I think makes it fairly easily. And so that is our subject matter today. What does it mean? Uh, to inherit God's kingdom. Matter of fact, what is God's kingdom? If somebody came and asked you that question, how would you define that? Is it here and now? Is it something that's only future? Is it something that is physical? Is it spiritual? Is it both? What does the Bible say about God's kingdom? And that's kind of the focus that we're going to look at today. And the reason why is because it's very important for us as we look at Paul's statements, um, and I will read this again as he says in verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, by positive application, we could say, Do you not know that the righteous will inherit the kingdom of God? And so for us to find great hope and find great joy in, um, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and in this, especially this time of year, let us uh, study God's word and understand what it means to inherit the kingdom of God if we are God's people. And if not, help us, may the Lord help us to mourn our unrighteousness in knowing that we will not inherit God's kingdom. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would do such a work in your heart um, as we look at this passage uh, today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're really only going to be in verse 9, and then I'm going to jump all over the place in some verses of Scripture that will be up on the screen to help you carry it along. Um, so 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 6, verses 9 through 11, and let me just begin by asking you, have you ever received that inheritance phone call? The one that we all hope to, uh, to receive, but um, very few of us ever receive it. The long-lost relative that we didn't know anything about has left us millions of dollars in his last will and testament, um, which we greatly celebrate and are completely and totally shocked by. Um, believe it or not, there are cases like that uh, in reality and history. Um, in my study this week and research, I found a story of two brothers. Uh, their, their names are Hungarian Zolt and Giza. And they were homeless in 2009. They were living in a cave outside of Budapest, Hungary. 
and scavenging junk for a living when they learned that they had inherited a fortune from a grandmother in Germany. The siblings were located by a charity worker and put in touch with attorneys who were handling the estate of their maternal grandmother. The Telegraph reported this story in 2009. These once penniless brothers, after settling the estate, received four billion pounds, which would be the equivalent of more than five billion U.S. dollars. Now, when we think about that story, that uh, that is a that it's very uh, fantastic for us. It's very amazing to think about, and by all means, we would love to have such a surprise in our lives. But the truth of the matter is that um, inheritance in this life can be a great experience, but it also can have deadly consequences. You can read many stories of people that have played the lottery and struck it rich very quick. Oftentimes that immense and quick reward oftentimes leads to their destruction. People that receive so much income and so much wealth in a short amount of time don't know how to possess such wealth, and it oftentimes leads to their destruction, many oftentimes to their own suicide because of the quickness in which it goes away. And of course, we know that is a temptation spiritually for us to be filled with greed and discontentment. That shot of wealth quickly vanishes and leads to hunger for more, which is not readily available. That's why the Bible tells us that we should never seek to get rich quick. That we should not store up treasures for ourselves on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But instead, store up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I want us to understand this morning that those, the story of those two brothers receiving such a call that made them, uh, that, that, that led them from being impoverished to greatly wealthy is literally our story if we are. That's our story. It was a surprise to us that God would lavish his love upon fellow believers, the saints, the holy ones. God brought about such a radical change in us, one that uh, we did not expect, one that we did not hope for. And yet God brought us to a complete change, bringing us from uh, not only fools and, and, and impoverished, but to receiving the greatest riches that we could receive, not earthly ones, but spiritual ones. This is the story of our inheritance, whereby we got a phone call, uh, metaphorically, from the Holy Spirit that literally brought new life into us, and we became wealthy instantaneously in Jesus. This is the aspect and the beauty of our inheritance as believers in Jesus Christ. And Paul is trying to make it very clear to the Corinthians who have continually dealt with sin in their midst, that some of you, some of you in the hearing of Paul's letter, and, and possibly some of you in the hearing of my voice today, don't understand such an inheritance because you are unrighteous and you do not belong to such an inheritance. You are the stepbrother or the half-sister that has no right or claim to the inheritance because you have not been or are not biologically wed 
to such a family. And in the same way as unrighteous people, you may do good religious things and you may think that you are spiritual, but unless you are wed to Christ in salvation, you are not and have no claim to any inheritance in him. And so I want us today to look at these aspects of identifying this inheritance and what it means to belong to the kingdom of God. First, we want to look at just the word, the kingdom of God. There's been a lot of discussion about what does the word kingdom of God mean as it's mentioned in the Bible. You can read various authors and come to various interpretations. But when we step back, we need to look at what does the scripture say? What are some important truths that give us clarity to understanding the kingdom of God? And one that has become very helpful to me is actually called the two kingdom interpretation. The two kingdom interpretation. The word kingdom in the Bible um, oftentimes is thought of a realm where a king dwells and rules. Or it's oftentimes thought of a people that belong to such a king and to his rule and authority. But truthfully, the Bible actually describes the kingdom of God as simply God's sovereign authority to rule as the sovereign king. George L. Ladd, in, in a very helpful book um, called uh, Gospel of the Kingdom, writes, A kingdom may indeed have a realm over which a sovereign exercises his authority, and it may be the people who belong to that uh, realm and over whom authority is exercised, but these are secondary and derived meanings. First of all, a kingdom is the authority to rule the sovereignty of the king. Lad goes on in that book to show how the Hebrew and the Greek words used for kingdom in the Bible actually simply mean the rule and the authority of a king. Therefore, the kingdom of God is his ultimate rule and authority over all. Not just some certain space, a moment of space and time, not just a specific geographic location or even a certain group of people. When we think about this kingdom, we think about, as the psalmist writes, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. That doesn't mean your people is an everlasting people, although it could mean that. Ultimately, the, the psalmist is writing, your sovereign rule is an everlasting sovereign rule. And your dominion, he says, endures throughout all generations. Or Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Well, what's he saying? Don't seek a certain group of people. Do not seek a promised land or the benefits of such a kingdom. But instead, seek his sovereignty and his authority over your life. That is what the uh, definition and the ultimate meaning of kingdom in the Bible uh, should be considered. That it is literally the, the rule and reign over all. Now, when we begin to read through the, the, the Bible and it talks about the kingdom of God, of course it references the realm in which God rules over and the people with whom he rules over, but ultimately we are thinking about God generally and his kingdom as his sovereign rule over all. 
But this two kingdom approach helps us really answer the question, well, is God, are God's people the kingdom of God because we live under his rule? Is it specific to us? And if so, then are we ne neglecting or negating the fact that God actually rules over all of his creation? See, we come to this, this difficulty, this struggle with what truly is the kingdom of God in his sovereign rule of all. Because some people would believe and say that God's kingdom is over all. Well, if that's the case and God's kingdom is over all, then that means that all people belong to his kingdom. And we would have to deny that truth because literally Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that there are some who are excluded from the kingdom. So in the two-kingdom approach, we would it's, it's best explained as God first is a universal king overall, but that there is a, uh, in, with, underneath the umbrella of his universal reign is two kingdoms. Now, if you don't like the word two kingdoms, that's okay. You can call it a divided kingdom. And we'll break that down a little bit more in, in our time today. But first, let's think about the universal reign of God. In Genesis chapter 1, God reveals this reign, his authority over all, his rule over creation. With Adam as the appointed vice regent or king over this creation. He calls Adam to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. And dominion is a kingly word. It's an authoritative word. Therefore, Adam is called to rule underneath the sovereignty of God's universal reign over all things. And think about this. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see the blessings of this universal reign which God has appointed Adam to be a vice regent of. Those blessings include... The institution of marriage. Marriage is not for believers. Marriage is for all people. And because marriage is for all people, it is an example of the blessings of God under his universal reign over all things. In addition to the family, the very working of the garden, the vocation of man, all these things are examples of God's universal reign. His rule over all human beings and in his creation and his kingdom with Adam serving as this earthly king under God's supreme rule. Adam was also, we could say, called to be the priest of the garden where he was called to work and keep the garden. The working and the keeping was not just an agricultural uh, enterprise or a horticultural enterprise. But literally the words work and keep in the Hebrew often refer to the practices of a priestly role. So Adam is not just called to be this under king, but he's also called to serve as a priest of God's creation. Therefore, he is pointing people to God's rule, to God's sovereignty. Scott Amiel in his um, writings on this two kingdom approach says this God intended for his universal sovereign rule to be expressed through humanity in a single earthly kingdom. He intended a perfect union between the cultural and religious 
to exist in the garden. Adam was supposed to be the perfect king and priest. And had Adam succeeded in this responsibility, mankind would be continued, would have continued to perfectly rule the natural world as mediators of God's universal rule. But church, we know that that's not what happens. Genesis 3 shows us that this kingdom was disrupted. It was divided by Adam's failure to accomplish the task that was set before him. Therefore, sin causes the kingdom to be divided. You can call it, as I said, two kingdoms or a divided kingdom, still under one reign of God. But in this kingdom, or kingdoms, we see the division and the break between all the world as the common kingdom, as you might call it, and the redeemed kingdom of God's people. Notice with me in Genesis where we understand the story of Noah as an example of this. Noah and, and Adam, or Noah and his family come off of the ark after the flood. God has destroyed humanity. He's wiped off basically his creation in a sense, recreated. And in doing so, he sends Noah and his family safely onto the ark and then off the ark. And he promises to Noah and his family to never destroy the earth again. Now what Adam is, what God is doing in this situation is he is stepping in for Adam. Where Adam failed to preserve the garden and protect it and keep it, now God has to step in and establish his rule. He tells Noah that he will never destroy the earth again. Therefore his preservation of creation and his rule over it continues but yet there is a failure there's something lacking and that is another Adam Noah fails to be that Adam Noah fails to be what God had intended for it to be and it leaves this longing in the story of God he actually tells Noah and his family to come off the ark and to be fruitful and to multiply but you know what he doesn't tell Noah that he told Adam he doesn't tell Noah to have dominion over this creation. And the reason why is because there is something missing that points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in this model of two kingdoms, we understand that God is continuing to preserve and protect humanity. But in the, uh, the plan of God to have man rule and reign over the earth, there's been a failure in that. There's been a separation. There's been a break. And it leaves us longing for something that Jesus Christ will fulfill. And so you have the, the divided kingdom or the sect two kingdoms, the common kingdom of the world. Yeah. Where God rules and reigns, but there is, uh, there is this separation from God. But in Genesis chapter 12, we see the second side of this kingdom, or the second kingdom, which is the redeemed kingdom. And the redeemed kingdom is established by a sovereign God who lavishes his love specifically on certain people or persons. We see God calling Abram to leave his home, to unite in covenant with God, and in doing so, become a father of many nations, and that that father would be a blessing to all peoples through his lineage. So he calls Abram and changes his name to Abraham, 
And that this redeemed people come in relationship with God by faith. The Bible tells us that Abraham believed God in his promises and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Through Abraham, the multitudes from Abraham representing God's people and God's kingdom will be a blessing to the nations. So you have the, the, the common kingdom or one side of the kingdom where people have uh, faced the curse of sin and are rejected. And then you have the redeemed side or the redeemed kingdom, which is representative of those who God lavishes his love upon. He sets them apart. He calls them out of darkness into his marvelous light. And Abraham is one example. And we come into that kingdom, this redeemed kingdom by faith. This is the entry point. As God calls us to himself, we enter into that kingdom by faith. And this redeemed kingdom is established in God's people in the Old Testament and into the New Testament as we see it demonstrated in the church. But there's always this longing, there's always this reflection of something that's needed for there to be a rewriting of the kingdom of God that's divided because of sin. And we understand the distinction of these kingdoms, even by the words of Jesus who says to me, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There will be some who will not enter the kingdom of God because they have rejected God. They have rejected His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So to enter the kingdom of God is to be redeemed by the work of Christ and to enter that kingdom is to enter by faith. Not all human beings display such faith. All human beings exist under the rule and reign of God, but only those who are called out by God, given faith to believe, and are regenerated by the Holy Spirit exist or have entered such a kingdom which is visibly represented in the church today. And this is Paul's point, to show that distinction. So that one, we don't become universalists, and we think that because God rules and reigns all, thing, all things, that, that all people believe and, and belong to the, king, the kingdom of God, therefore all people would be saved. That's not what the Bible teaches. But we also don't deny the fact that God does not just rule this one little uh, aspect of reality, the redeemed people of God, but that His sovereign rule and reign exists over all creatures, all people, all time and space throughout all history. Therefore, we come to understand that the kingdom of God is His rule and reign over all things existing in that Two or a divided kingdom, one common kingdom, which is unregenerate, which is unrighteous, which is living for itself and yet still under the sovereign rule and reign of God. And the redeemed kingdom or the redeemed side which exists of people who have come by faith to trust in God. And we understand that that divided kingdom is not divided for eternity. This is literally the point of our celebration of Christmas and the Advent season every year. To be reminded of the future hope that we have in Jesus. Jesus makes a promise of a future kingdom that is to come. It's a unified kingdom. 
It's unified in Him as He comes into the world in His inauguration or His incarnation as God putting on flesh by His grace and, 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 and the, the revealing of the Holy Spirit. We come to understand and see Jesus as our only hope. And we come to see that the promises of Jesus will be fulfilled. For example, in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before Him. And He will separate them one from another as the sheep, a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Jesus is promising that as the Son of Man prophesied in the book of Daniel, that he will come again, and in his coming, he will unify the common and the redeemed aspects of the kingdom, bringing them once again together back to an Eden state of recreation, whereby God will establish a new heaven and a new earth, where Jesus Christ will reign fully with power and authority, and the redeemed, the sheep, as he says in that passage, will dwell in his presence and inherit the kingdom prepared for them, and the goats will also dwell, not in the presence of God, but under His rule and reign in eternal suffering. That's right, church. We must be reminded that even the goats still suffer in hell under the authority and the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hell is not possessed and ruled by some figure that we know of as Satan. He does not sit on the throne of hell. He does not have the keys to anything. He is under the sovereign rule of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ demonstrated his power and authority over Satan when he came into the world, putting on flesh, and not only resisting the temptation of Satan, but just but disabling him and destroying him by dying on the cross and raising him from the dead. Now Satan will fully have his judgment and his suffering for all eternity when Christ returns, but Satan has been defeated. So let's not believe in a theology whereby Satan is powerful and coexistent with, with Christ as if they are in this, this battle throughout the world Demonstrating an equal power. Jesus Christ has defeated Satan. He is our hope. And those in this common kingdom as we've talked about. Even they are foretold in Philippians chapter 2. That the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Christ comes again, when these kingdoms are once again reunified, all peoples, redeemed and unredeemed, righteous and unrighteous, will bow the knee before the sovereign rule and authority of Jesus Christ. That's why in Revelation chapter 11, 
It's prophesied by the Apostle John that the seventh angel sounded and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of Christ. He will reign forever and ever. So what we experience here today, we experience as the church, we are a part of this redeemed kingdom. And in this redeeming kingdom, we are a reflection of spiritual realities that will become physical realities when Jesus Christ comes again. George L. Ladigan says that this is the not ready or not yet an already state of believers. We are experiencing things like salvation. We are saved and yet we are being saved and we will be saved. We are already made holy, but yet we are being made holy. And when Christ comes again, we will be holy. All of these aspects of the redeemed kingdom are occurring within us. And have already occurred to us or for us by Christ and his great work upon the cross. So when we come to understand what the Lord is, or what God's sovereign plan has occurred in the world, we come to understand that Jesus Christ is the great fulfillment of that plan. That in his kingdom, where there was a shortfall and a curse upon because of sin by Adam, Jesus Christ steps in. He comes in the form of man. He lives a perfect life. He defeats Satan. And he, he is victorious by his death and resurrection so that he can do what Adam did not do. That is why Jesus can reunify the kingdoms. Because he's been appointed as king to rule and reign. And he accomplishes that very thing which reunifies the kingdom of God again. So we come to understand that God's kingdom, maybe in a way that we've never thought about it before. And the question that we always have to come and ask ourselves in this very moment is, is which side of the kingdom do we belong to? Yes, we're all under God's rule and reign, but are we a part of the redeemed? Are we a part of the common, unregenerate, unrighteous, destined to pay for our sin and face the wrath of God? As sinners. Because one aspect of this passage that Paul is trying to, uh, to make very clear with this language that is, is flowing from the Old Testament into the New is that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so, what, what does it mean then to inherit such a kingdom? That's our second question. We've kind of understood, come to understand what is the kingdom of God. What does it mean to inherit such a kingdom? And Paul uses this metaphor of inheritance because it's been passed down through the story of God. Starting in the Old Testament, we understand that, that as God establishes his covenant with Abraham, he promises blessing for God's people. And that blessing... Most clearly stated is in the form of a place of rest to dwell called the promised land. That as they grow and expand, as they, uh, as they 
move across the earth, being blessed with prosperity and, and God's favor, they move from one destination of captivity to a destination of dwelling, of blessing, called the promised land. And if you just do a word search, if you go into a Bible study
benefits does not usually come from a stranger. It comes from people who love you. And they pass down riches and they pass down wealth that they worked hard for and that they acquired out of love. They give it to someone else. They don't want to give it to strangers, most likely. They give it to you for love. I don't know many parents that are be like, my son or daughter weren't great people. They didn't really treat me the way that I should be treated, so I'm not going to give them an inheritance. Maybe that happens. It shouldn't happen. Because out of love, our children should take what we possess and carry it forward. Because it has spiritual significance. Inheritance is based in love. Well, the inheritance of God's people, as God promises them blessing, and He promises them a future, the land was just representative of the love of God that He was giving them. Because the land wasn't the best of the blessing, God was the best of the blessing. Matter of fact, I love in uh, the book of Numbers, there's all the tribes of Israel, they get a plot of land, and they get an, a, a, a lot, as you would say, a, a dividing up of the inheritance. But you have this one group of people called the tribe of Levi, and particularly, the Bible tells us that they do not receive part of the inheritance. They're the priests of the temple. They serve the temple. They get some uh, uh, monetary contributions from the temple. But I love in the book of Numbers, the Bible tells us in verse 32, the Lord says to them that they will not receive an inheritance on the other side of the Jordan and beyond because their inheritance is the Lord. He is their inheritance. He is their Wealth and their riches. Because the promised land was only a land unless the Lord dwelt among them. That's what made it a blessing. Only the, the land was, was uh, valuable to them if the Lord rested with them and dwelt with them. And Israel failed to see that. But now we've come to understand with progressive revelation and the, and the truth of, of God's story unfolding that our inheritance on this earth until Christ comes again, we understand the spiritual blessings of belonging to Jesus Christ. That literally Jesus Christ is our promised land. That there is no spatial geographic place where Jesus will satisfy us. When we trust in Jesus, he satisfies us. We want abundance and, and we want the things that we need. We oftentimes think that Jesus will give us physical prosperity. He doesn't promise us that. He does promise us what we really need, spiritual prosperity. He promises riches in him. He promises us wealth in Him, not wealth for our pocketbooks. And so to be an inheritor of, of, of the kingdom of God literally means to inherit Christ Himself, who is the ruler and king of all. That He came, the Lord Jesus Christ, pointing forward, or He came, excuse me, as the, the promised land, as an eternal rest for God's people. 
You know, I think about the, the story of Israel walking across the desert and they're, they're, the Bible says that God sustained them in such a way that literally the soles of their shoes didn't even wear out. We think about shoes in that day and we probably try to imagine what those looked like and, and the fact that Israel traveled such a long distance. I think it's probably more metaphorical than, than anything else to show that God was sustaining them. And we're like, Lord, I need you to sustain me. And in our minds, in our flesh, we think, God, I need you to physically sustain me. And he does. He bears our burdens with us, right? He gives us strength in the difficult times. But oftentimes we lose sight that he needs to sustain us spiritually. That is our ultimate goal, our ultimate need. So the spiritual blessings truly is the definition of inheriting the kingdom of God for God's redeemed people. Let me ask you to, to hold your place here, turn toward the end of your New Testament to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, one of my favorite passages, Peter makes this connection for us. First Peter chapter one. <clears throat> Peter helps us make this Old Testament connection to the spiritual realities of us in Christ. Notice what he says in verse three of chapter one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Look at verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> a couple things that we need to remind of is Peter's making this connection to our inheritance of the kingdom of God and our spiritual blessings. Number one is that our inheritance is unconditional. It's unconditional. Our salvation is according to his great mercy. Our inheritance is according to his great mercy. His mercy gives us salvation instead of wrath for our sin. His mercy gives us spiritual clarity instead of a darkened, blind mind to spiritual truth. His mercy gives us faith in Him instead of a rebellion against Him. And He causes us, the Bible says, to be born again. But because without being born again, Jesus tells Nicodemus, we will never see the kingdom of God. We will never inherit the kingdom of God. But because he causes us to be born again spiritually, we are transformed immediately, just like those brothers in my opening illustration, to become heirs of the kingdom of God. And folks, we don't find our way to the kingdom with groaning and great aptitude. We don't find our way to the kingdom because we're wise enough to find the path that leads us there. 
No, the location of the kingdom is gifted to us and the strength to travel so that our shoes don't wear out is given by God's grace so that when we end up there, we end up solely on His grace and mercy. No person can cause another person to be born again and therefore the inheritance cannot be given to anybody except by God alone because it's an undeserved, unconditional gift. Secondly, Peter says our inheritance is unfading. Listen, if the best that we can get is a geographical plot of land, we understand that those lands can be overcome by armies. We understand that riches can be overwhelmed by thieves. Families can be overwhelmed by death. These are good, but not our true riches. Our inheritance, our spiritual blessings in Christ... They are eternal. They are unable to be to fade away because Jesus himself is our inheritance. We find our satisfaction in him and our joy in him. So that whenever anything else falls away in your life, if you're clinging to Christ, you've lost nothing. So our inheritance is unconditional. It's unfading. And lastly, it's under God's protection. This is the greatest of all truths for us in this day and age. That when you are under your salvation and your inheritance is under God's protection, no one can take it from you. You can't fall away from loving Him if your love is genuine to begin with. Your inheritance is Jesus, and He is our portion. He is our promised land. He is our eternal rest. And all those Old Testament uh, promises and, and pictures find their fulfillment in their amen in Jesus so that he might be the, por the portion that we long for and that we desire and that we are fulfilled in. So we have a brief picture, a brief understanding of what God's kingdom is. So that you can now uh, assess and examine, do I belong to one side or the other? Have I been uh, and become an heir of the kingdom of God, the redeemed kingdom of God, whereby God has saved me from my sin, where I trusted Him fully? Or do I belong to the common side or the common kingdom? The one that is uh, made up of people who are separated from God and unrighteous and dwelling and living and enjoying the sinfulness of their own life. Well, next week, we'll dive deeper into identifying these beneficiaries of the kingdom of God, as Paul makes it clear in verses 9 through 11. But as we do, I want you to examine yourself to see if you are in the faith, if you truly belong. Because in the end, Christ is your Lord. But He may be Lord over you as you sat, are satisfied in His presence, or He may be Lord over you as you are facing the wrath of God for your sin. Either way, He's Lord. The Bible says, or the Bible said in the book of Joshua, as Joshua wrote, or declared, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. My challenge to you, church, today is choose whom you will serve 
kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you will solidify the truths that we've learned today so that they may encourage us and give us hope. So that they may rest in satisfaction and joy in Jesus. So that we may find him as our greatest treasure and not the things of this world. God, a winning lottery ticket may give us temporary happiness. It may give us nicer cars. But all those things fade away, Lord. Help us not to be tempted with earthly treasures and fantasies that give our soul no satisfaction. Help us instead, Father, to long for Christ, to love Him, to find joy in Him, and to rest in Him as our rock in the midst of stormy trials that we may face. Help us to celebrate Jesus, especially during this time of year, as the promised Messiah, the one who will restore once again a kingdom that's divided because of sin and will display the glory of God to the world in his second coming as he did in his first. Father, we long for that day as, as your people. May we rest and may we wait and may we be eager to see that day come and be faithful until it does. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.